George Walton was born in, in 1907, and he grew up to become an estate appraiser. That's a, a pretty cool gig that he had. What it allowed him to do is to kind of have first eyes on some things of, of great value. As he went into people's estates and, and tried to help them figure out what they could sell things for, he, he saw valuable stamp collections, and he saw gun collections, and he saw coins, and he had the opportunity to be the first person before anybody else saw it to say, hey, I'd like to buy that from you before it even goes up for sale. And so over his time of his career, he, he assembled quite a collection of things. One of the things that he came across in looking in a state was what looked to be a, a very rare Liberty Head nickel. Only five of them had ever been minted. And he's at an estate, he's appraising it, and he had collected coins and understood kind of the value of those things. And he saw one, he said, I think this is one of the five Liberty Head nickels. And so he approached the, the owners of the estate and he said, I would buy this from you right now. I'll give you $3,700 for it. That was in 1945. And the estate said, that'd be great. He paid $3,700, took that Liberty Head nickel, went and had it appraised to find out what the value would be. And the appraiser came back and said, hey, unfortunately, it's a fake and you just lost $3,700. And so it had been labeled no value, and he just put it in with his other coin collection. Several years later, he was on the way to a coin show and was tragically lost his life in a car accident. And his coin collection, a lot of, a lot of others of his things, was passed down through the inheritance to his nephew, Ryan Givens. Ryan looked and learned about coins since he had this inheritance, but it was never something that was a passion for him. Until one day he saw on the news that they were putting out on display four of the five Liberty Head nickels. And that there was one that was missing. And that there was a monetary reward being offered for somebody that could produce the fifth Liberty Head nickel. And he knew the story. He went and found it. It had been marked. It had been put in a case. It had been marked no value. He took it to the appraisers of that event, six different expert appraisers. And they spent several hours comparing that Liberty Hidden Nickel to the other four that they had in their presence. And lo and behold, what had once been marked as no value was the missing Liberty Head Nickel. And Ryan Given sold it for $3.1 million. Right? We hear stories like that and we're like, why not me, Lord? I mean, I'll tithe on it, you know? I mean, why, why does that ever happen to me? I shared with you from this stage before, like one of, the, one of the bucket list things in my life that will never happen, because my wife has already said absolutely not, is this idea that you get from Storage Wars. Have you ever seen that TV show where you go? And I mean, I see it, I just get compelled by it. I'm like, they paid, baby, look, they paid like $150 for the whole storage shed, and they sold all the stuff for 1000 And she's told me, we, we are never buying someone else's junk. If they didn't care enough to pay the storage bill, we don't want it. And so, but in my mind, I watch these things, these shows, and I'm like, that's a bucket list. I, I want to find, I want to find my Liberty Head nickel in there, right? If you haven't seen the show, just imagine with me, this is what it's like. Imagine going to a storage center somewhere in Georgetown or where you live, and somebody hasn't paid the bill. And so what they do is a, a couple of people gather around on a Saturday, and they lift up the, the garage door on the storage shed, and you have a few minutes to look. You're not allowed to go inside. You're not allowed to touch. But you look inside and you decide how much you want to bid as the, the contents of that storage shed is auctioned off. So just imagine with me that you're there. And you're, you're with me and we, we're going to check this off my bucket list. And we've kind of talked ahead of time. We've pulled our money. We're, we're going to bid a couple hundred dollars at the most for something. And they open the storage shed. 
And we look inside, and, and there's just a handful of people there. We've got a flashlight. And, and in the back corner, we see this painting. And, and it's hung up, and it looks kind of like this painting that's on the screen. It's called The Card Dealer, this painting is. And, and you know, we just know because we, we, we saw something on, on TV a year or so before that, that, that a painting like this, The Card Dealer, was bought by the royal family of Qatar for somewhere between 250 and 350 million dollars. And, and we remembered that because we remember thinking, who would pay that kind of money for a painting? It's not that good. You know, like, I don't, I don't understand that. So it was stuck in your mind. And we, we shine the flashlight back then. We go, you know, they showed pictures of the other four paintings of this set. And, and that painting in the back, it, kinda, it, looks like, it looks like those four that they said they don't have. And, and we grab our phone real quick and we take a picture of it. And we've got a friend who works for the Dallas Art Museum. And we text it to him real quick as they close the garage door. And we go, hey, what do you think? And he says, man, that looks a lot like, looks a lot like it. But the other four are missing. All we know is that someone in the Austin area bought them several years ago and they've never seen them ever again. And there's four of them. And it could be like $1.2 billion. Are you willing to go over the $200 limit? <laughs> How much are you willing to spend as we gather and we're going to split the contents? How much are you willing to leverage of your own stuff for $1.2 billion? Well, that, that's the question as we start this Advent season that we're going to wrestle with this morning and hopefully through this week as, as we talk with our families, as, as we meditate back on, on the Scripture in Matthew, what would you be willing to give for everything? If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 13. We find a story, two stories actually, they're parables. A parable is a story that has a spiritual point that Jesus tells and we find him in the book of Matthew. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was a Jewish man. He worked for the Roman government as a tax collector. But he, but he, he walked away from that to spend time with Jesus to follow under the, the leadership of that rabbi. And, and, and several years after Jesus died, Matthew began to write down several of the things that Jesus did and that Jesus said in his presence. And so Matthew records and what we have is Matthew chapter 13, several parables, these stories of the spiritual point. And in the two, two short stories we're going to look at this morning, Matthew tells us two things that Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's probably not a term that we use very often in our own vernacular in 2016 in America. But, but if we go back to the original listener, we go back to Matthew, and we understand their context, what they processed the kingdom of heaven through came out of their reality. Now, they were under Roman rule. The Roman emperor was the most powerful person in the world at the time, and Israel was, was fallen under that Roman rule. And so every day as a Jewish person went around, they saw Roman soldiers on the street, and they knew that when they paid taxes and went to Rome, they knew that Rome was the kingdom that was the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time. But they also knew, being good Jewish students of the word, the Torah, they knew that there had been a time, and they knew from history, and they knew from their parents and grandparents telling stories, they knew that there had been a time when it wasn't that way. When Israel itself was the most powerful kingdom around. And they knew stories about King David and how he had, how he had vanquished lands all around and grown Israel's uh, property to the biggest that it had ever been. 
and his son Solomon, who ruled with great wisdom, and the kingdom was incredibly wealthy. And they, they, they knew of these stories, and they knew of the promises that God had said to his people that, that, that he would be their God and he would be their king, but, but yet they're living in this reality where Rome is the political ruler, the political king. And they've been longing for this, this time where things would go back to where they were. And so when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, the natural idea that people would have thought when they think of kingdom was political powers. But we're going to see in this passage of Scripture, these couple, the kingdom of heaven was, was more about a spiritual reality than it was a political reality. It was about a spiritual inward change that, truth be told, should be, could be, and would be come so powerful in my life and everyone else's life as they follow Jesus, as they follow God's plan for the way the world is supposed to work, as we, as we submit ourselves to a spiritual king, this inward reality of the spiritual change of following God's plan would swallow up the kingdoms of the world. Because as you and I start to follow the Lord and, and, and as we start living by his principles and we start aligning ourselves with what he wants to happen, the kingdom of heaven begins to be seen on the kingdom of earth because we begin to change the world as we follow the Lord. And so it was the spiritual reality that would turn into something that, that possibly could have been political, but it definitely would have turned into something that would have been world-changing, but it started in a person's heart. But they're not thinking that way per se. In Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus tells them this story in verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So Jesus gives this picture again, kind of foreign to us. But, but in those days, or even earlier, it wouldn't have been odd for someone to go and, and bury a treasure or their, all of their possessions. It could have been a reality like this. We could have known that there was an invading army coming. And as the, the army is going to invade, we live on the outskirts of town, and, and we might just survive the invasion. But if soldiers of the invading army come into our house, they're going to take all of our stuff. They're going to take our valuables. So, so the owner of the home and the property goes and digs a hole and puts all of the family treasure in there and covers it back up. Or maybe they heard that there were rob <coughs> robbers, excuse me, or marauders in the area, and they had been raiding people's homes at night. And it's, it's local, and so they go and dig a hole and put their stuff in. So if they get robbed, nothing will be taken. But then the invading army comes and takes the owner of the home off into exile. Or the marauders come, and they end up killing the owner of the home, and the valuables are left buried. And years down the road, family down the line, they don't know that the, the, the valuables are there. And they've hired this worker, a blue-collar guy, to come out and to to plow the land because they're an agricultural community. And a blue-collar guy is out working. He's, he's trying to make a living. He's got his horse and his plow. And as he's going along the way, he, he feels the, the plow hit something in the ground and it lifts something up. And as he looks back, the sun catches the reflection of this gold coin. And he stops his horse and he goes and he realizes that his plow ha has hooked underneath a, a wooden chest and has pulled it up. And there's treasure all over the place. <coughs> now, the, the landowner has the right to the property. And so he goes 
Scripture says, Jesus says, in great joy. And he sells everything he has so he can come and buy the property so that what's underneath the ground can become his. And he goes and sells his plow. And he sells his horse. And he sells his home. And his family and friends are looking at him like, you have lost your mind. What's so valuable about this, this piece of property that you're working that you would go leverage everything that you'd have? You'd sell it all, sell it off because they don't know what he knows, that there is great treasure there. And he starts selling off everything he has with joy. He's excited about it because this is, this is something that is going to change his life and change the life of his family. He's found this great treasure. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what this, when you discover what God's plan is for your life, when the purposes of God begin to become a reality for you and you start living a life that God planned for you and has set up and taught us how life works, all of a sudden you have this great joy and you go, that's what I want. I want to follow Jesus. I want, I want, I want a world, I want a life that is, that is characterized by grace and, and love and faithfulness peace and harmony. I want that. And with great joy, I'll go leverage everything I have. I'll get rid of everything so that I can have everything. Jesus wants his disciples to hear this. Say, you're so caught up in the way that you think the world works and you want this political system. But in reality, the kingdom of heaven starts inside of you and it changes everything. And when you discover that, it brings great joy. Like a guy who found a treasure in the field. And then Jesus tells another story in verse 45. He says again, let me link these two stories together. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, ancient writing, even outside of scripture, tells us that pearls in those days often were extremely valuable. Divers would go uh, down in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. And, and because of supply and demand, you can understand in those days, if someone is diving to get pearls, they were, they were much harder to find than maybe today. And there are stories in ancient texts of pearls being worth the equivalent of up to $10 million of value in, in our dollars today. But the person in this story is a little bit different. He's not a blue-collar guy who's just out working and, 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 and suddenly heaven springs up on him. This is a guy who's looking for something. He understands. He's a merchant. He buys and sells things. He knows what he's looking for. He's looking for a pearl or he's looking for something of value that, that could become the, the great find that he can spend some money on because somebody maybe doesn't know what they're holding and, and it can change his reality. And so as he's going along, he comes across someone who's selling a pearl and he realizes this pearl is worth millions and I can sell everything I have to buy it and it'll be worth more than I ever imagined. He's the equivalent of maybe the person who grew up in a family where there was conditional love. The kid that grew up with a mom and dad who traded love for behavior, or they traded love for, for, for them, for a, a child to do well in sports. And when they did well in sports, they felt loved. And when they didn't do well, they didn't feel loved. And they've grown up looking for unconditional love all their life because they've only understood it to be conditional. Or it might be the equivalent of a person who, who's in a marriage that does not experience forgiveness. 
And every time that spouse, <coughs> excuse me, makes a mistake, every time that spouse messes up, the other spouse just lives in a world of grudges and holding on to it and can never let it go. And it's the person that's looking for something that they've heard of. They're a spiritual seeker, maybe. They go, there's got to be something better than this experience. And then somebody reveals to them what the kingdom of heaven is like. That there is unconditional love. That there's a father who forgives. And with great joy, they're ready to sell everything they have to experience life as God intended it. If you go to Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he experienced it. He went from being a religious person, a very religious person, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to a follower of Jesus. Paul experienced the kingdom of heaven begin the inward reality, the, the, the change in his life. And it compelled him to leave everything and to go and become the first and great missionary who planted churches all across the Mediterranean rim. And in Philippians chapter 7, he's writing to this church at Philippi and he's talking about his experience. And look what he says in verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, it wasn't just Jesus teaching some, some theory. Paul experienced it. He's lived it. He said, I had so much, but I count everything that I had, I count everything that I gained, I count everything that I went after in the world as loss, as trash, for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven, when I discovered it, Paul would say, changed my life totally, and everything else I had became valueless, and I found the most valuable. And what Jesus wants his disciples to understand, and what he wants you and I to know is this, that God's kingdom, his plan for life, is worth abandoning everything for. It's a game changer, quite literally. It makes life meaningful and purposeful because we step into what God created us for. And Paul says, you know what? I've sacrificed things, I've lost things, but it's meaningless to what I, to compare to what I've found. You remember... You remember some of you that had children? I don't know if you remember kind of the, the process of the nine months before that child was born. I mean, like for, for our firstborn, and it's different with your firstborn and secondborn. With our firstborn, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an administrative type person. I had like spreadsheets out, like comparing strollers. Like, well, this stroller has rubber wheels and this one has plastic wheels. And honey, we want the rubber wheels in case we hit a rock. You don't want to jar the bed. And so we need rubber wheels. And, and this one says, this company, Consumer Sciences, this is the most valuable one. And everything from cribs to, to, to strollers. To, I mean, I had the spreadsheet out and we went. I mean, I studied and I went and, and, and bought the things I thought mattered, put a lot of money into it. Yeah, and to be honest, you know, like second child came along. We're like, what do we have left? That's fine. She'll be okay. Put her on a pillow. She'll sleep well. Uh, you know, that first child, I mean, I was working hard and, and spent tons of money and, and spent hours getting, getting that room ready and the room painted and the crib in there and, and getting all of those things. And then that moment came 
When the child arrives and you hold that baby for the first time, you, you, you don't ever think, ah, I hope this was worth it. <laughs> right? That's crazy. Like, you don't go, huh? I mean, we put like $5,000 worth of stuff, man. Oh, the head's kind of wrinkly. I don't know. <laughs> or you don't do that. You don't even consider the sacrifices that have been made because what you're holding is the most valuable thing that you've ever held. And crazy as it is, in the way that God planned things out, <coughs> we step into Advent where the kingdom of heaven, that reality, entered the world in the same way as a baby. And we're getting ready to move towards the Christmas season. We begin it this morning with week one of Advent, where we start turning our eyes to a baby in a manger who came to reveal to us what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And there's no sacrifice. There's nothing that you can't give that you won't find great eternal values in return. But you know, as we look at these parables, these parables, they call us to a decision. The guy in the field overturns the treasure. He has to make a decision of what he does. And he goes and leverages everything he has for it. The merchant finds the pearl of great price. That's a tough decision to go, man, I got to sell everything. What if, I, what if I'm wrong? What if the appraiser says my liberty head nickel is valueless? What if this pearl isn't what I thought, but I'm sure it is? There's a decision that comes. And we have to make a decision. What do we do when the kingdom of heaven is presented to us? Are we willing to give up everything, to abandon it all for what God has given us? So I want to ask you, maybe to reflect for a few minutes, on what it is that you might be holding back from the king. What, what is it that, that you've said, you know what, I would leverage, leverage everything, Lord, I'd give you everything but this. Maybe it's finances. Maybe you're all in to the kingdom of heaven. God, I want to walk in your plan. God, I want to, I want to, Jesus, I want to follow you. But Lord, I'm just not sure if I follow you, if my retirement will be like I want it to be. So Jesus, I'm going to follow you. We're going to do everything you want, but I'm, going to, I'm, still, going to, I'm still going to keep my finances mine. Because I, I, I think I can manage those a little better than you can, Lord. I mean, like I read, I read the Bible. Jesus doesn't say anything about you having a 401k or an IRA. So I don't know if you're real sure what you, so I'm going to manage my finances and I'll give you everything else. And we find ourselves being the rich young ruler, the young man who came to Jesus. And Jesus told him, sell everything you have and come follow me. And he turns and he walks away, missing out on the kingdom of heaven. Are your finances the Lord's? And what about your family? Do, do you trust God with your family? You, you know, being in student ministry for 20 some odd years, I can tell you the numbers of parents that I've seen that spend an inordinate amount of time at work in order to provide for their children. And that's an honorable thing, to provide for your family. I mean, we're, we're called to do that. But I've seen parents who have gone so overboard that they spend 60 and 70 hours a, a week at work so that they can, they can give their kids stuff and they can provide them with a life that they never had. And, and you know what ends up happening is their kids get a closet full of stuff and they miss out on a dad and a mom. 
They've got every electronic gadget and every new phone. And on their new phone, they can, they can go to version and read their Bible, but they don't have a parent who's discipling them. They don't have a mom or dad that said, let me show you how to walk with Jesus. Even though I'm the most, I'm the, I'm the most primary influencer in your life, every statistic says that, what I'm going to show you how to do is work hard to buy stuff. Because we don't trust that God, when he said, I want you to disciple your family, I want you to be the, the leader in your home, I want you to raise up these children in the ways of the Lord, we don't trust that God's plan is perfect. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes it's not parents who don't trust that they can be the disciple that God's calling them to be, and so they, they just try to buy their kids stuff and they're at work all day. Sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes it's the parents, what we call in our culture today, that are helicopter parents that they are so untrusting of God and what he might have in the store for their children that they want to make every decision for their child. They want to protect them from failure. They want to protect them from harm. They want, never want little Johnny to ever get hurt. You know, I was reading research the other day, and, and what we're discovering now is, is we've had now a generation of children who've grown up in child-safe playgrounds where we've taken out slides and we've taken out things that they might climb up and fall off because we don't want them to be hurt. And the, the research is saying now, they think that maybe we have a generation of 20-year-olds who are dealing with anxiety and fear because we overprotected them. Because we never let them climb up at a child level, a playground, and fall off and be hurt. They've never known how to risk. They've never known how to take a step that was a little bit challenging. And now they're 20-somethings, and mom and dad have protected them for so long that because they didn't trust that God could do that, now they have a 20-year-old who's dealing with anxiety and fear and can't function in the world. It may not just be that we spend all of our time at work. It might be that we don't trust God with what he wants to do with our kids. But what, if, what if God raises up a child and at 18 they come to you and they say, Mom and Dad, I have been praying about it. And you know it. You, you've watched the child. you watched the hand of God on that child. At 18 they come to you and they go, God, Mom and Dad, I think, I think God has called me in, into foreign missions. And I'm going to leverage my life for the people of Zambia or Indonesia. Is that something as a parent that we go, God, thank you. God, thank you that you've let me disciple and raise up a child who's going to be a world changer. Or do we go, well, I think you should go to college and get this degree first. And if God is still calling you four years later, then we'll talk about a master's degree. And if God's calling you after the master's degree, we'll pay for a doctorate degree as you continue to process what God is calling you to do. Or, or do we lean in and go, let's pray about that together as a family. We've been discipling you towards being a world changer. And if this is what God has called you to do to transform the world, man, we're going to take the funds that we've set aside and we're going to help you launch that ministry. But we're afraid. We're afraid that the kingdom of heaven isn't going to be what God promised it to be. What have you been holding back from the king? Maybe it's been worship. Here's a red flag. The last time you opened your Bible was last Sunday? It's a red flag. That you don't have time because you're so busy to get into the Word of God and let it change you? Or the last time you prayed was when you held hands around a Thanksgiving meal and thanked God for those provisions and you blessed the hands that prepared it and you prayed for traveling mercies for everybody going home. But it wasn't 
It wasn't a cry out to God. I, I, some, I saw somebody the other day that just that, that posted this. They said, if God answered every prayer that you'd prayed in the last seven days, how many people would be born into the kingdom of God? We prayed for our food, but we don't have time to, to go to the throne for the people that we love. That's a red flag. I'll be really honest with you, because I see this too. We come and sing corporate, we come to corporate worship, we sing. And when you're on the stage, you can look out and you can see so many people, men, it's usually us. We're not even willing to raise our voice and sing aloud corporately to the God who gave us everything. So we just stand with our arms folded, waiting for the songs to end so that we can sit down, hear a word preached to us, and then head to Luby's. It's not the kingdom of heaven. That's a red flag. If you can come gather and you're not moved to worship with a people who believe in the same God that you believe. What have you been holding back from the king? I guarantee you in a room this size, there's somebody in here that what you've been holding back is your own life. You, you've never come to a point in your life where you've said, you know what, Lord, I, I'm going to actually call you that boss. I'm going to kneel at the foot of the cross and give you everything I have because I want to trade in. I want to exchange my life for the kingdom of heaven life. I want to, I want to experience the joy of knowing that your plans and purposes are becoming real in my life and real in my community as I live it out with the people that I share life with. In just a few minutes, we're going to have a time of invitation. There's going to be some music, and, and we will stand and sing in response to God. And if there's never been a point in your life where you said, you know what, I, I want <coughs> to give my life to Jesus Christ. I, I want the kingdom of heaven to come into my reality. I'm going to invite you to come down. I'll be down here. Our pastor will be down here. Just right here, right in front. In our gym venue, there'll be some, uh, some of our pastors right down front. When we stand and sing in a moment, if you need to follow the Lord, or if you want to talk to somebody about it, you come and find one of us. And you just need to simply say, yeah, I, I want to know about following the Lord more. By that time, you might need to come down, and, and you might want to come to the altar as a symbol of, uh, of coming to the throne of God and, and, and doing business with him. You might need to do that in your seat. I don't know. But what is it that you have not given up for the kingdom? Because we are given two stories that are very clear. That the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. It's like a pearl of great price that changes everything. Before I pray for us, I want to share with you one last story. In 2012, there was a 19-year-old kid. His name was Dakota Guerin. He was doing some part-time work at a lady's house on the northern side of Portland, Oregon. And shortly after doing his, the, the work that he was doing for her, the, the lady in the home realized that a family, her family coin collection had gone missing. She called the authorities. The police came. They interviewed people. She told about the part-time worker she had. The police went to Dakota Guerin, and they, they interviewed him. He said, I had nothing to do with it. I don't know anything about it. The police didn't have any evidence, so they, they let him off. Until a few days later, they discovered that Dakota Guerin and his girlfriend had gone to a movie theater and bought movie tickets with some very valuable quarters. And they used them 
as quarters. They had a $5 quarter that they used as 25 cents. They had a quarter that was valued at $68 that they used as 25 cents. And they bought their movie tickets with quarters that were valued at several hundred dollars. And they went to the pizza place and they bought some pizza with coins. Paid for their pizza with coins that were worth $18,000. We shake our head and we go, man, what a knucklehead, right? But here's what I wonder. How many of us are holding the kingdom of heaven in our hands? This pearl of great price, this treasure that was so valuable that it was hidden in the field, and we look at it as it's just a couple of quarters. There is nothing more valuable than the kingdom of heaven. What is it worth to you? What would you be willing to sacrifice and give up to step into the full reality of the kingdom of God living in and through you?